as we turn to Acts chapter 6, what we're getting here is sort of a transition, uh, an introduction to the next two prominent figures in the story of Acts, and then also an introduction to the next prominent step outside of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told the disciples, the apostles, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world, really. And to this point, we still have kind of just been in Jerusalem. But we begin to transition away from that. And what's interesting is we see God do that not just through um, native Jerusalemites. What's the proper term for a person who lives and is from Jerusalem? I don't know, Jerusalemite? <laughs> Anyways, but from um, even those outside of Jerusalem, those who have come into Jerusalem to do ministry, those who have come to Jerusalem because maybe they had work there, those who were not born there but had active engagement there. And so this is what we're finding here in Acts chapter 6 is a continuation of the story of the church, the early church. And this time the church finds itself struggling with something unintentional. The last couple chapters, chapters 3, 4, and 5, we've already had two major struggles that we've seen. The first was persecution. And so we saw persecution where it began. The second issue was an intentional fraud, a hypocrisy, a deception that certain people in the church. So we have struggles outside the church, inside the church. But both of those were intentional. People who knew what was right, and we've talked about that a lot, who saw clearly with their eyes what was the truth, yet still denied it outside the church. And then those inside the church who knew the right thing to do, yet still chose to completely go against that. And God dealt with those in particular ways. The apostles responded to those things in particular ways, as we've seen over the last few weeks. And a church that is moving forward will undoubtedly endure opposition and struggle. But what we find in our text in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, as we come to this third issue, this third struggle dealing with the church, is that not all struggles are due to intentional actions. Sometimes problems arise just from the nature of existing, from the nature of living, living in a broken world, living in and around other broken people, living in the midst of change. The church here, as we see, is learning to adapt its intentionality with the ability and opportunity that God has given to it. So let's read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6 and come back and talk about this struggle. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
The church has a clear mission to obey Christ, to be obedient to the faith in him that we profess. Verse 7, that we just ended at, says a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What does that mean? That we have a bunch of rules and regulations that we're focused on following? That's what the priests were doing? I don't think that's the case because our duty as Christians, our faith, is not built on obeying a bunch of rules. That's what we call legalism. That's what the priests were already doing as part of their Jewish religion, their heritage, their spiritual understanding up to that point. It's what we've seen these rulers of Israel having been involved in. Luke is not telling us here that the priest just traded the Jewish religion for the Christian religion. He's telling us that the priest believed the message about Jesus Christ, that they had repented of denying him and repented of having taken part in crucifying him, that they believed the miraculous nature of his virgin birth and his sinless life and his death in their place as their substitute and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have to make sure that we get the order of these things right. And we have to make sure to get our perspective right when it comes to obedience, which we talked a lot about last week. We obey because Jesus has changed our hearts. We do not obey to be accepted by Jesus. We do not obey to be accepted by the church. We obey because Jesus has changed our hearts. And when Jesus changes our hearts, when he gives us a new heart, when he removes that old heart of stone and gives us a living, breathing heart of flesh, what he has given us is a new desire to love him. And if we love him, we will obey him. We obey him not out of obligation or duty, but out of gratitude and praise. And we obey him not out of the ways that we think are best, but we obey him in the ways that he has clearly taught us to. In Acts chapter 1, clearly, as I already mentioned, Christ told the disciples, he said, you will be my witnesses. Not just a, here's what's going to happen in the future. It's, here's what you need to be actively doing. Here is the way in which I am expecting you and calling you to obey. One of the clearest teachings that we overall have been given, that God's people have been given throughout the entirety of Scripture, is to take care of the widows and orphans, the sojourner, the fatherless, the husbandless, the penniless, the jobless, the hopeless, the helpless. Now, true religion isn't going to save you. Jesus will But true religion is a sign that Jesus has saved you. And James says true religion is this, that you care for the orphan and the widow. Now, I'm going to turn this before we go too far down that road. Because our text today is not really, it's not really about widows. It's not about widows and orphans. It is, it does have widows in it, clearly. But it's not really about that. It's not about them. Our text today is about staying true to the calling that God has put into our lives. So here's how I'm going to define this. There are two ways in which we ought to view our calling. I'm going to try to make this easy on us. Before I do that, I'm going to preface it by saying that if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, you have been called. You have a calling. So if there are going to be two ways in which we view our calling, you have to first understand that you have a calling. We each 
We all have a calling. We have been called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. With everything we have, we are to love God. And part of that expression of love is obedience to him. Acknowledging that he has standards and expectations for his creatures, us, that we might not naturally agree with. We can know what those are by reading and studying his word, by applying the truth of his word into our lives on an active and regular basis. And one of the clearest ways in which we can express our love to God is by loving the rest of his creation, namely by loving others, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus clearly says this in the Gospels, that these two commandments, to love God and love our neighbors, are the two most important commandments. So as Christians, we have been equipped with a new heart and the Holy Spirit to empower us to do those two things in a continual and special way that only we can. God has put a calling on our lives. And here's how I think we should view this. There are two ways in which we ought to view our calling as Christians. General and specific. It's really not rocket science. General and specific. So the first one, the general one. The general way in which we've been called. It's really what I just mentioned. Our general calling is to love God and love our neighbors, love our neighbors according to God's word. That's the general call that each of us has. To love God and love our neighbors according to God's word. What that means is we don't always get to choose for ourselves how that looks. Sometimes there are ways that it ought to look and sometimes there are ways that it ought not to look. We do not love our neighbor by neglecting the helpless. If we just love those who already love us and love those who give us gifts and we don't bring mercy and justice to those who have nobody else to defend them, we are just patting ourselves on the back and completely disregarding God's clearly expressed desire for us. We do not love God by choosing to worship the things that he has created. There are plenty of ways that God has revealed in his word throughout history that has been recorded for us among God's people from creation all the way up until the beginning of his church and the establishment of his church and different churches that had different problems. There are plenty of ways in which we can fail and refuse to love God in the way that he expects. And there are plenty of ways that we can see how we can do that. We all have a general calling. And then I believe that we each have a separate specific calling. And when I say that, I don't, let's say it this way, I'm simply saying that we are each unique individuals. We have different levels of talent and skill. We have different skills. We have different unique interests. The Holy Spirit has gifted us differently. We all make up the body, but we are not individually the entire body. And we are not all the same parts of the body, as Paul seeks to make clear in Romans and 1 Corinthians. There is a diversity among us, whether it's our backgrounds or our language or our family dynamics or our practical skills and abilities or God-given gifts. Even in that diversity, there is a unity. So when we look at our text in Acts chapter 6, these first few verses, 
what the apostles are doing in this text is they're aware of the general call on the church as a whole and the specific call on each one of those in the church themselves and others. And they get everybody together and they say, hey, we can't neglect either of these things. We care about the widows. God has demonstrated and made it clear to us that we need to care for them. And so we're not going to say, oh, there's a problem with the widows. They can figure it out. Because the problem is they probably can't figure it out. That's why God has clearly said, of all the people in this world that you need to be aware of and to take care of, amongst your own people especially, are those who can't fend for themselves, those who can't provide for themselves fully, those who need relationships that no longer exist for them in their natural state of being. They don't have husbands. They don't have children that can care for them anymore. They don't have parents who can take care of them and provide for them. They need help. And God, instead of saying, good luck figuring that out, you're on your own, he says, my people need to do something about that. I have called you specifically to care for those who can't care for themselves or who just need help caring for themselves. They're aware of that. The apostles are aware of that general call on everybody. And they get everybody together and they say, hey, we need to embrace our responsibility here. We can't neglect this. But we also can't lose sight of the specific calling that God has put on our lives as apostles, the specific and unique call that Christ himself has given to us. And they say, so we need to do something about this. This problem needs to get solved. We need to begin working on this. But if y'all are going to expect us as the leaders to figure it out, we're putting a lot of emphasis on us. You're just looking at us to do everything for you. And so that's not healthy because if everything, if the burden just gets placed on us, then we're not all sharing it together. We're not each individually partaking in the general responsibility that each of us has. And we ourselves, if we are burdened with having to care for everybody's problems all the time, then we're going to get bogged down and we're going to be drawn away from what God has called us to do, what Christ particularly has called us to do. That's why we read earlier from Exodus. And Moses, it's just an instance in the Old Testament where Moses' father-in-law said, hey, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out if you are doing all of the work yourself. So maybe it'd be a wise thing to do is to give some of that leadership over to others who are responsible, who fear God, who love the Lord, who the people respect and respond to, and let them settle some of these more minor disputes. And if it's something that's really egregious or no one has a good idea of how to fix this or a good solution, then it can come back to you and you can deal with the really serious things or the just the unknowns. But we need to share in this 
responsibility, share in this burden of leadership, share in this problem solving. And that's a bit of what we find here in Acts chapter 6. The apostles are saying, look, yeah, there's 12 of us, but if things like this keep coming up and we are constantly dealing with it, not just coming up with a solution, but then enacting the solution that we've come up with, then what are the rest of you doing? And are we continuing to be able to do what God's called us to do? And the answer that the solution that they came up with is that we can't be the ones who decide exactly what to do and how to do it, how to move forward. But it's not that we're going to throw our hands up in the air and say, we have no clue. It's here's what we think would be a good course of action moving forward. How about as we've all come together, we pick a few guys and we say, hey, we'll let them be in charge of serving in this capacity so that God can use their gifts, their skills, their abilities and ours and together working side by side in our own different areas but still together unified we can move forward the problem in this church didn't arise because Mildred hated Agatha and they started a campaign to keep her from and all her widow friends from getting something to eat every day. This was just an administrative problem. They hadn't anticipated it. They hadn't planned for it. The perspective we get from Luke is that the leaders were a bit oblivious to the issue initially. Right? I mean, the problem wouldn't have arisen if at least enough people weren't aware of it from the beginning. Otherwise, maybe it would have gotten taken care of before it came to this point. But once they were let in on it, they acted on it. They did something about it. They didn't just say, oh, well, y'all can figure it out on your own. They, they knew the general call on their lives to love God and their neighbors, and especially to love their neighbors who were helpless. And that's what the apostles are trying to protect, to preserve that unity in the midst of diversity, that responsibility, privilege to care for those who need help that are around us in our lives, in our spheres of influence. But they're not going to help at the expense of their specific calling. God has gifted the church not so that one or two can do the work for everybody. He has gifted us all. And he wants those who arise to positions of leadership to have certain qualities about them. He does, the apostles here in our text don't just say, pick out whoever you think is best. No, in verse 3 it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So in some capacity, they even share in the decision-making. They share their decision-making with the regular populace of the church. This is some of where some of us in the Christian world think that this is an example and reason why maybe we ought to let the people be in on certain decisions. Let the people decide what's happening in their church. It's not just a completely top-down, 
everything that we're doing comes from this one or a select few people. It's We are all part of this decision-making process. We have all been given the Spirit. We have all been given the general calling on our lives to obey Christ, to love him, to serve him, and to love others. And so how can we do that together? Maybe you've got some good ideas. Maybe you know some of these people better than just an individual person otherwise can know a hundred people. Well, there's probably pockets of y'all who know and have more relationship with and have known for longer or have seen firsthand some of the ways in which God has worked in some of these other people's lives. And so they say, hey, we don't know everybody, but y'all do. And so why not use your knowledge, your skills, to put forward some people who, according to those on the outside, have a good reputation and on the inside. Everyone respects them. They're going to listen to them. They're going to follow what they say. Whenever they're going to these widows and saying, hey, here's what you get, those widows are going to respect them because they have a good reputation, because they're trustworthy. But not just that they have a good reputation, that they're full of the spirit and of wisdom. And those two things, I think this, that they're spiritual and practical. They have practical skills and they are spiritually minded are important to remember and to consider for each of us even now today. God has given us knowledge. He has given us his word. We can know the right things to do. But if we're not actually enacting those facts into our lives, then that's what we would call a lack of wisdom. Wisdom is having the knowledge and knowing how to implement it. It's actually doing what we know to be true. That's a show of wisdom. How can I apply the knowledge that I have been given? In the story of Solomon, the wisest man besides Christ to live this earth from what we've understood from Scripture. And one of the things that he's famous for is the story of the two ladies who have two babies and during the night one of them lays on one of their babies and kills it and then they steal the other lady's baby from her and act like, oh, this is my child and you have the dead child. So, you know, there was that little old baby swap happening. But the true mother of the living child knew this dead child is not mine. The one that's living, that's mine. I know my child. And so the dispute came to Solomon and he's like, ah, here's what I'll do. I'll cut the baby in half and you can each have a half of it. And the lady whose child had died was like, oh yeah, it's a great idea. It's like, who says that's a great idea? That's, it's like the worst idea out of any idea. <laughs> Um, But it showed her true colors because I guess Solomon was able to apply his knowledge of the situation and his knowledge maybe of that woman, his knowledge of a a woman who would go to the links to try and steal another woman's baby and try and get away with that crime. 
he was able to apply his wisdom in such a way where he was able to find out that, no, the true mother was going to say, look, before you kill my child, let the other lady have it. Like, I would rather see my child live than cut it in half, and I get half of a child that is dead anyways. doesn't make any sense. I would rather give up what is rightfully mine so that they can have a chance at life and live. And Solomon says, you, you're... You're the true mother. You're the right mother. The baby's yours now. Even when she was willing to give it up. He showed his wisdom. He was able to apply his knowledge of life, his understanding of human behavior, psychology, whatever it is that he had. All of it, I'm sure. Except for how not to take a thousand wives and let them lead you astray. But most everything else, he was fine it seems. Sometimes our wisdom only goes so far. But it's the application of the knowledge. That practical skill of being able to say, I'm, I'm doing with what I know for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And then it's being full of the Spirit. This is a constant descriptor in Acts, being full of the Spirit. It's one thing to say, hey, this guy has a bunch of practical knowledge and wisdom and skill. He's a good businessman. He's like Solomon. People respect him. People come from afar to learn from his leadership skills and wisdom. He has tons of people who are underneath him. He has a good reputation. He's nice to his people. He's kind to them. He knows how to apply the things that he's learned in business. But instead of just simply choosing that guy because he's proven himself in the business world, it's saying, yeah, that's good and that's great. And that's, that's a certain requirement. Not that you're successful in business, but that you've shown your wisdom in life. And that you're full of the Spirit. Because there are many people who are successful in business who are not full of the Spirit. Who don't have an eye towards the things of God. Who maybe have made good decisions and have profited from it financially or just generally. But they may not be full of the Spirit. They may not be spiritually minded people. They may not have any clue as to what God has said and how to love God. God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They may not have given themselves up to depending on the Spirit in situations. The Spirit hasn't really moved in their life before. The Spirit hasn't changed them. There can be an appearance of godliness, an appearance of spirituality. But it's not always necessarily the case, and sometimes we conflict the physical application of knowledge and wisdom with technically being spiritual. But according to this, that's not necessarily the same thing. And what's really interesting about this whole, this text, is that when we read the rest of Acts chapter 6, and you look at Stephen's speech in chapter 7, and then you look again at chapter 8, 
and you move forward, you notice that Stephen and Philip, the two people who we're going to see further on in chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, they're not, they're not being described for how much love they showed the widows. They're not being marked out for the ways in which they physically used their gifts of serving. What they're shown to be doing is working wonders and signs among the people and to be proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's what Stephen does. It's what gets him killed. It's because he's not afraid to do it amongst the Jewish leaders. He says, here's the truth of the matter. Here's the gospel right before you. Philip, we see him preaching in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he says, here's the truth of the gospel. And many people are amazed. They're in wonder at how the Spirit has used their teaching and preaching of the gospel. To be full of the Spirit, again, I'm going to be a broken record, and I might not mention a ton more, maybe I will, does not mean that they're speaking other languages. It means that they are being used by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel boldly and to love God and love other people. And the people recognized this. The people chose these seven men. The apostles said, we need to devote ourselves to the calling that God has put on our lives without neglecting the overarching, the overall call that we have. But these men have been gifted to serve. They know these women. They know these widows. They know these people. They themselves are likely Greek-speaking Jews, like these women who are getting left out in the daily distribution. Let them help. Let them serve. Give them a place. So that we can do our work, they can do their work together. We can be doing the work of God and the different aspects and facets that allow us together as a church to move forward and to expand our reach and our witness. And that's what we see happening. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's amazing what God does when we see a problem and we work together to find a solution, and we trust what the Spirit has done in people's lives to continue working in their lives to serve, to teach, to preach. What we are about here at the Vine Church, we use those three words, gospel, community, and mission. We have these general call, this general call on us to proclaim the gospel, to build each other up in community, and to send each other out on mission. To proclaim the gospel to build each other up in community, and to send each other out on mission. Now, we can't always be doing all of these things. 
But we should be doing these things in in the different ways in which God has gifted us, different ways in which we are given opportunity, the different ways in which God has gifted us and given us the skills and abilities to. And right now, among us, we are at a place where we have a bit of a concern, a problem. We are just sort of existing. And it begins with me as a leader, the leader, recognizing that, that we just kind of are here. We're just kind of doing what we've always done, even if we haven't done it for long. We've just been slowly doing the same thing without much change. And so we need to, maybe like what happened here, where the leaders said, hey, we recognize this problem. It's not necessarily anybody's fault. This is just where we are. This is the facts of the matter. We're not here to try and figure out why these people got to this situation, unless that's helpful in knowing how we can solve the problem. We're not here to blame, right? The apostles, you see them here in this text, they're not saying, how did this happen? Why did it get this way? And maybe they had some of those conversations sort of on their own, you know, behind closed doors. Maybe, maybe they did. But that's not what's being recorded for us because that's not necessarily what import, is what is important. What they're saying is, hey, there's a problem. It exists. We need to figure out how to move forward from this. And so when we say that we are a church who is about proclaiming the gospel and building each other up in community and sending each other out on mission, there are different ways in which we have done that, each of those things, and there are different ways in which we are doing those things. But I think that we are at a point where we need to assess exactly where we are and how we can productively, in the power of the Spirit, with wisdom, move forward And how that looks practically. What we can do about that. How can we better proclaim the gospel to those who have not yet received it? How can we better proclaim the gospel to ourselves? How can we build each other up in community? Those of us who are here. How can we encourage one another? How can we disciple one another? How can we be actively involved in in different events or projects or just individual opportunities to send each other out on mission? To get out there in places where we haven't been before or to find a boldness in the places where we've been hesitant to so far, send each other out and see what 
God can do when we trust him and as we're seeking to obey him. And the call that he has put on our lives as the Vine Church to go and be his witnesses, to go and make disciples. So I think we need to have some particular conversations towards those ends and how we can move forward well being good stewards of what God has given to us the people that we are as individuals and the specific callings that he has put on each of us but then also overall in the overarching ways that he has called us to love him and to serve him Let's pray. God, would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to consider ways in which we can move forward well in obedience to you, not in just a contentedness with the status quo, but in conversations, in prayer, in study of your word together, to know how we how we can move forward the things that we ought to be doing the perspectives that we ought to have the emphasis that we ought to proclaim and make clear to ourselves and to those who are looking on and on the outside looking in. To be your people who are called by your name to love you, to love those that you have put in our path, especially those who otherwise can't help themselves. And then also to build one another up to proclaim the gospel boldly to those who haven't heard it, to those who haven't responded, to those who need it, to build each other up by proclaiming that same gospel to our hearts that are prone to wonder and and to send each other out to be a people who are on mission, who are not satisfied with just building a little kingdom here, but in advancing your kingdom God, would you give us wisdom? We know many of these things generally that ought to be done, but specifically how can we how can we move forward? Would you be with our conversations? Would you would you stir our hearts? Would you would you use us here in Abingdon in this area? To see people saved, to see people, see people come to faith, to be lights that shine in the darkness, to declare your glory, the praise that you deserve. Would you use us 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.